My name is Matt. I have met many of you before, and some of you have not. And welcome here today. On this Easter Sunday, the day that we celebrate the end of the Lenten season and proclaim that on this day we remember that God has risen, that God has raised Jesus from death. And we, we, we do things like say, He is risen. <laughs> right, exactly. And we're fairly informal here, and that's a great thing. And one of the reasons for that is because we're probably a little suspicious, a little uneasy with the ways that we come together in unity, that the things that we tend to unify around are often the exclusion of somebody else, building some sense of who we are by some sense of who we're not. I could do things along the lines of say, and you know, isn't it wonderful that we can celebrate that Christ is risen here today? And you know, isn't it so hard out there to, you know, wish people happy Easter? Isn't it awkward out on the street? And we should come back to our heritage and this land is going to bad places because we won't do that. And as I would say things along those lines, this is what I would be doing. I would be gathering us together as a kind of mob, as a kind of unity, in order to say how much better, superior, humbler <laughs> we are to those heathens out there, whoever they are. And we can imagine us coming together in these kinds of ways. So all of this, all of these things are very powerful, but also very dangerous. And the reason I am saying this is that to suspect this is something that the resurrection has taught me. And I'll be getting into a bit more of why as, as we move along here. And after, after last Sunday that I preached here a few weeks back, before maybe five weeks ago, in the early days of Lent, I was advocating that for Lent we should give up God. We should stop believing in God for Lent. Um, and somebody asked me afterwards, well, what do you believe about the resurrection then? Do you believe in anything? <laughs> and they didn't say that. Are you even a Christian? I don't know. <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll, I'll paraphrase the uh, French philosopher Jacques Derrida and say I rightly pass for a Christian. Um, but the reason that I would advocate for something like giving up God for Lent is precisely because I do believe in the resurrection of the dead, that God raised Jesus from the dead. And what was revealed in God raising Jesus from the dead is that we have no idea who God is. That the resurrection from the dead is God's proclamation to us about who God is, and we didn't have the faintest, foggiest clue. And this is one of 
This is one of the reasons in terms of the accounts that have come down to us, the four Gospels, and their confusion in the resurrection accounts, and the ways that the resurrection accounts don't line up all across these four books, and they sort of contradict each other. You, you, you wouldn't build like an ironclad forensic case out of this whole thing. You wouldn't want to actually try to prove anything from this, despite many Christian apologists who do pre- precisely these kinds of things. Because what you get in the New Testament accounts in the Gospels is just chaos, pandemonium. Something has happened. He is not here. He is risen. And we don't know what is going on. We keep trying to tell you. In fact, we are trying to tell you so much that we couldn't tell you in just one story. We wrote four of them. And the reason they don't agree is because we don't even really understand what's going on here at all. And the honesty that you see in the gospel accounts of how little the apostles, the supposed inner circle, understood, for me, actually attest to the truthfulness and the reliability of these narratives because nobody in their right mind would try to convince anybody of this story the way that these accounts do. It's like it's, it's, it's like slapstick comedy almost, but also tragedy because everybody abandons Jesus as he is led to the cross. Peter denies him three times. He's so caught up in the mob calling for the blood of the innocent one. Even he, despite his protestations, is caught up in this and This is supposedly the first bishop of Rome, the father of the church on this rock, I will build my church, and he he, he screws it up the most. And not only this, but the first witnesses to the empty tomb are the wrong people. It's women in a massively patriarchal society that wouldn't even know how to call itself patriarchal because that's us looking back on it with the imagination that things could maybe be somehow different. Women were not allowed to be witnesses in court trials, but here they are in every single gospel account as witnesses to the resurrection as the first ones who were much more faithful than the male apostles and the male disciples who went to investigate after, after the Sabbath had ended. They went to the tomb to try and see what was going on there because he had, it was the Sabbath. He got, he got buried in a tomb in a rush, completely the wrong kind of burial for a Jewish man, but... They had to bury him in a rush so that they could observe the Sabbath, and now they were coming back to anoint his body, and he's not there. And they began to have these encounters with the risen one. And in every single case, they don't even recognize him until he does something like speaks their name, or they break bread together, like with the disciples at Emmaus. There's always something that happens where a shift in perception has to happen because we do not know who God is until God reveals God's own self to us. And these accounts say that God has revealed God's own self to us by becoming one of us, by becoming our victim, and then being vindicated by by the Father raising the Son from death. That for God, death is nothing. 
And what's as, as I was as I was preparing for this, we we believe that we are somehow the most rational people who have ever existed, and that the uh, the first century folks were a bunch of rubes who would believe anything, and that's one of the ways that we like to make ourselves much better than them. Uh, <laughs> this is one of this is a, a, a just general human pattern. Oh yes, we are so much smarter than they are. They were used to this fact that people didn't just get up out of graves. Nobody really believed that people were dead one day, alive two days later. This was, this was a scandal in the ancient world of the, of, of the early church and the, the, the writers of the New Testament. This wasn't exactly anything anyone believed at that time either. So our doubt is nothing new. In fact, if they had wanted to start a movement this was basically the worst way they could have gone about it by proclaiming that God had raised their disgraced leader from the grave, their failed Messiah. Because in their imagination before Easter morning, that's what Jesus was. He was a failed Messiah. The Messiah was supposed to kick out the Romans, supposed to lead up a military uprising to once and for all make Israel for Israel again. You almost, I almost wanted to say make Israel great again because that is the same kind of logic. Let's kick out the contaminants. Let's get rid of the wrong kinds of people. And when Jesus was coming around not fulfilling that role, but he was stirring up so much unrest, finally everybody united together. They had welcomed him to the city a week prior, and now they were calling for his blood crucify him, crucify him. They all came together and united around the innocent victim. And that's precisely what is new in history about these gospel accounts, is that Jesus was not guilty. Jesus, the victim that everybody unites around to come together, none of us could agree upon anything, but right here in this mob frenzy where we're calling out for his blood, we are at last united. And all the heroic accounts of myth and history are told by the victors who came together around some innocent victim. But the victim is never innocent in those stories. No, the victim was always guilty. They had it coming. Try reading, try reading the, 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 the tragedy Oedipus Rex. No, he had it coming. He did everything wrong. Oh, yeah, he, he, did, he did all the wrong things. He had it coming. And that's the, way that the, that, that's the way that these stories get told whenever we come together around victims against, whether it's one or a, or a group, we push them out, and they had it coming. They contaminate us, and we've got to get rid of them. But for the first time in human history, we have here in, the, in these gospel accounts the perspective that the victim was innocent. And we only have that perspective because God vindicated the victim by raising him from the grave. Jesus entrusted, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit, trusted himself to the one for whom death is no thing. And God was faithful to his son 
and raised him from the dead as the first fruits of whatever we're hoping for in some kind of new creation where we will continue to live on, not in some disembodied state, but in our bodies. And this is the second reason we find it so hard to believe in the resurrection. Because what the resurrection is ultimately is God's yes to the human body. We hate our bodies. There is no group of people who has ever hated their bodies more than we hate our bodies. Star moment. Cut him. You're the wrong body. I have the wrong body. We're always looking at somebody else's body. We don't want our body. And so this is one of the reasons that it's so hard to believe in the resurrection, because no, no. If there's going to be any kind of paradise, it better not be in this body. I better not be stuck with this flesh suitcase for my soul. No, salvation would be to leave the body. But the resurrection of Jesus is God saying, not only did I take on a body, but I am embodied. The second person of the Trinity, the Son, is embodied forever. Invited the the, the doubting Apostle Thomas to stick his finger in his wounded side forever in a body. And that doesn't really jive with this kind of heaven, hot, sweet, by-and-by theology that so many of us have been exposed to, but we will be bodies, whatever that looks like. We, we too, will be raised with him somehow. And that, that, that isn't just hard to believe. We don't want to believe. I don't want to be stuck with this body. Whatever God may do to it to improve it, I don't want it. So these are a couple of reasons why it is so hard for us to believe in the resurrection. But you're getting maybe some of the sense of why I say that I do. And this opened up a new understanding about who God is, because before this, God was always the God of our people on our side against them. God is always the God of the winners, the victors. And the losers would always start to worship the gods of the people who conquered them throughout all of history. But Israel began this stubborn kind of defiance where they wouldn't stop worshiping Yahweh. (laughs) They just kept uh, getting their asses handed to them (laughs) time and time and time again. And their stubborn refusal to stop worshiping this loser god and trying to figure out how he could still be faithful and true and just, and they just kept losing. And so really, the entire context of the Old Testament is Israel's wrestling with the question of when will God restore us? When will God finally come through for us? When will we finally be in possession of our land once again? When will the Messiah come? When will God stop being angry with us and come through for us and defeat our enemies? That is the story they are living with. 
In the story of the Messiah who loses, who is crucified by the enemy state, is not the story of the God that they were expecting. This is not the God who they thought was going to come through for them. Because they, just like us, do not know who God is until God reveals God's self to us by raising his son from the grave. In this connection, um, what, I, what I love, there's, um, there's a theologian, a Lutheran theologian named Robert Jensen who recently died. And um, after a long career in theology, distilled the question of God down to God is whoever raised Jesus from the dead, having first raised Israel from Egypt. So there's your continuity, but it's also whoever, whoever this God is. It is the God who did this. It's not, you can't just say God without a qualification, without a story. And the story of God is the story of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. A real Nazarene male body that lived and walked the earth 2,000 years ago and is somehow here and not here in his body with us, even as, even as I speak right now. And so to get a sense of what this story means, because this story is, for, for so many of us, familiar, to get a sense of the reconfiguration of knowledge and desire that the risen victim began to impart upon his early followers and down to this day, I'll tell a story from my own life to try and get a bit of the flavor of this kind of thing. So the story goes like this. I was a very angry, unhappy young man uh, throughout my childhood, teenage years. That the reasons why are their own story, but this is all too common. Angry, angry, hurt young men. And I had a best friend. We'll call his name Fred. Fred will likely not listen to this, and I could give his real name, but, you know. Fred was my best friend from childhood, and my, really my only friend, because I wasn't an easy person to like, because I was so angry. And as, as things go, as particularly the high school experience goes, there are social circles, and there are groups you want to be a part of that you can't. And so there's a group of popular kids that I feel like somehow have something that I do not. My friend Fred and I both feel this way. And we begin to make all of the efforts to fit in with this group. They have something, some kind of life that we do not, some kind of secret. If we could just only belong to this group. And so doing all the doing all the things that, you know, one does to modify oneself to be acceptable to a group, begin to smoke, begin to, you know, hold my nose while I drink some Molson Canadian just to try and fit in. 
all kinds of foolish things because I must belong to these people. And as time goes on, both Fred and I begin to make some inroads into this group. Until the summer between grade 11 and 12, Fred begins to grow more distant. He begins to not be around when I call his house. Back when you had to call people's houses and there was only one phone. <laughs> I'm dating myself here. His parents would answer the phone, oh yeah, Fred's not here. Fred was never there. So I could never connect with Fred. We could never plot our next plan to go hang out with the kids who don't seem to really accept us. And as time goes on, the sinking feeling works into my gut, and I begin to see, at times, Fred already with the group that we have been pursuing being a part of. He has become a part of them, and somehow, some way, the cost of his acceptance was my rejection. That for him to belong, I had to not belong. And for a very, and for now, a now friendless, angry, hurt young man, this was devastating. This crushing. Uh, this was probably, I don't know, you know, I didn't go see a counselor, but I was probably depressed. Um, I don't, and so I don't really remember most of grade 12. I just slept a lot. School was easy enough for me, so that wasn't really the problem, but um, I really don't remember it. I just kind of passed through it in a painful haze because I was not a person. I had been rejected. I had been cast out by literally my only friend. And so you see here that this is a kind of crucifixion story. It's a story of being pushed to the outside. Nothing, of course, to the degree, but it's, it's got that similar kinds of theme. For some people to be a people and to belong, somebody had to be cast out, somebody had to be sacrificed, even though they didn't deserve it. I didn't deserve this. And as I tell this story, because... Our imaginations have been shaped by these gospel stories. We no longer believe automatically that the victim is guilty, which actually we believe through most of history, and we still believe much of the time now that the victim is guilty. But as I tell this story, you're probably sympathizing with this younger Matt of 20, over 20 years ago who was devastated by this, who was crushed, and you feel this sense of, will somebody fight for him? Won't somebody vindicate him? Won't somebody destroy his enemies? How could they do that to him? And so, whatever it means for God to raise Jesus from death is that precise thing. It's God's vindication, God's justice, God's judgment upon all of those who would do these kinds of things because we all 
do these kinds of things. We have all probably picked on someone, rejected someone, pushed them to the outside so that we could have what we need. This is what we all do. And I have done it too. I I, I reflect back even on my narrow pursuit of these stupid popular kids. Rejecting so many possible friendships that were right in front of me who weren't good enough for me, right? I was doing it too. And so I'm not an innocent in this, but I was still, this was still an injustice done towards me, and it, and it broke me. And, we're, and it's breaking all of us. We're all, we've all been rejected. And it breaks us when this happens. And so for the father to raise the son from death, the ultimate rejection, and not only death, but death on an imperial torture device, he lost, is to say something about who God is, that God is on the side of victims everywhere. Just as he heard the blood of Abel cry out at the beginning, just as he heard the nation of Israel cry out in slavery, he heard his son cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Whoever this God is, he is the God who is on the side of victims everywhere, judging victims Everywhere, not guilty. And this is the justice of God. Is that the story of the victim begins to be told. That the victim is not guilty. And that in some way we, we hope and we groan for the vindication of all victims everywhere. In our context, one of the easiest things to point at is survivors of residential schools. We long for their release and vindication, for for their stories to be heard, for somehow God to be on their side. And so to come back to my story about my rejection by my best friend, Let's, let's, tell, let's tell a slightly different story than what actually happened in my real life. So he has rejected me, and I've basically become nothing to him. I've become the price, the sacrifice for his belonging. And he's carrying on with his life. And suddenly, suddenly he hears, I've been away, but I'm back in town. And not only am I back in town, but I've been adopted by the most powerful man in the land. So, say Jeff Bezos or <laughs> someone like this, or, or uh, you know, suddenly I'm, uh, you know, Trudeau's right-hand man. Somehow, somehow I've been adopted into power and authority. 
I've been vindicated. In years I'm back in town. Matt's back in town, Fred. You won't believe who is his new adopted father. He's right next to power now. How do you feel, Fred? And there's a reason why every encounter with the risen Christ begins with him saying, be not afraid. Because everybody's like, oh, oh, I'm in for it. We all participated in his lynching. We at least didn't make it stop. And we were all a part of this. And he's back. And he's raised. And God is on his And we are so screwed. If you've watched Game of Thrones and saw Jon Snow, this is exactly what happened. They were in for it. And that's the story we know. If somehow you didn't finish the job, if somehow the unjustly persecuted one comes back, he is going to screw you up. You're going to get it. Now, there will be revenge. These are the stories that we are used to telling. We would, and, you, and you know like, that that's how Fred would feel with me suddenly powerful coming towards him. That this is, this is not going to end well for me. And this is why every encounter with the risen Christ is everybody panicking. Peace, be not afraid is the first words out of the mouth of the risen Christ every single time. Because this is too much for them. Too much. And it's not too much because bodies usually don't walk up out of tombs. It's too much because it revealed to them that they had what they had done. What they had been a part of what they failed to stand against. But what is revealed in the risen victim is the forgiving victim. Something entirely new, something entirely surprising, something different than we could have ever imagined. That this is what we did This is what we are always doing. This isn't that that we symbolically are always participating in the expulsion of some kind of victim. That we are always building our togetherness this way. And the victim comes towards us in forgiveness. But that forgiveness is the double move. Precisely at the same time of forgiveness is the revelation of what we've been involved in the revelation of what the texture of what we call sin is, is that we're awful to each other. And the extension of the forgiveness of the victim, the risen victim is the forgiving victim, is to show us what we've been caught up in, how we are continuing to be awful to one another and to offer to us forgiveness, conviction of sins, repentance, and the possibility of living another way, of living in the way, in the pattern, 
in the imitation of the crucified and risen victim who taught us things that seem insane in this pattern that we're caught up in where we always secure whoever it is that we are and our identity and our groups like pushing somebody out and where he says things like, no, no, love your enemy, pray for those who persecute you. But these aren't insane, unrealistic things, teachings. These are the offering and the availability of a new way of living. And this is why the gospel accounts are full of the screw-ups of the apostles because they're like, oh, that, ah. I have seen something new about God and about myself. I have received forgiveness, but I've also received a whole new understanding of the ways that I can learn what it is to love God and to love my neighbor as myself, to even love my enemy. That because this is precisely the pattern of living that Jesus lived out and that nobody understood. Nobody, it just didn't make any sense to any of them. And it still doesn't make any sense to most of us today to live like that. Sounds horrible. Sounds painful. But it also sounds like maybe it's the possibility of something entirely new breaking into history. And that's precisely the way that the early church reacted. Something is happening here. Something is happening here. So they went. <laughs> missionary journeys and stonings and beatings and because something new was happening here. We, we had a sort of taste of what God was like through the story of the people of Israel, but this is something entirely new. That we killed him, and he led us, and he forgives us. And that is the flavor of this available new kind of life, this life that was always available, but as we're caught up in what we would call our sin, which is the way in which we're awful to each other. That we're always making victims, pushing people out. This, we would have had no idea how to find this God. So this God found us, took the initiative. And so... Um, to sum up this, this line of thinking is, uh, is a little passage here from this stupidly big book about the resurrection that I read because my deception is that I can figure this out if I just read enough <laughs> instead of live this way. But Brian Robinette, a Catholic theologian, says to sum up some of this logic in, a, in about a paragraph here, God has become our victim 
in order to liberate us from producing and becoming victims, to offer us pardon for our continued and frequently unconscious production of victims, and to draw us into active participation in the inner life of God through the imitation of the crucified and risen victim, who is the image of the invisible God. And so, thank you for being here to hear the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. God has become our victim in order to liberate us from producing and becoming victims. And he actually says, this is justice. To offer us pardon for our continued and frequently unconscious production of victims, forgiveness, and to draw us into active participation in the inner life of God through the imitation of the crucified and risen victim who is the image of the invisible God. And this is, that last part is called divinization, that we will become like God. Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox theology is pretty good at that part especially. And so, I will say that this portion is done. Uh, Welcome, any questions? Yes? So, the way that Jesus taught is love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. And he does this not to just, um, not merely because he's a sadist who wants us to suffer. Because actually to love our enemies is one of the quickest ways out of suffering. Because when we're caught up in that cycle of being bullied and then hating the bully, to hate the bully is to harm ourselves and therefore to suffer. And to believe that our worth and whatever it is about us to receive whatever it is about us that is, makes us worthy and to have dignity, that the bully holds those keys. And if only the bully would stop bullying me, I could be okay. Whereas, you know, so many of us with more maturity begin to see the bully is miserable. The bully is so sad and pathetic and miserable that they have to bully somebody just to feel okay themselves. 
And as you begin to receive from the risen and forgiving victim a different kind of being, a forgiving, generous, bursting forth kind of being, you can begin to see these things and begin to see, oh, I, in love, I, I, I pity you. And I can stop responding in the heat of the moment, in, in the cycle of the moment, where I can stop even giving the bully what they want, which is my tears and my suffering and my hatred. I can stop giving the bully what they need from that encounter, right? Um, so, so, so stuff along those lines, is that? Yeah, it's just, yeah. it depends too. Like you that, should... that doesn't mean you throw yourself into bullying situations. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it just really depends too. Like, you know, you just want to give them, like, sort of a receive and response back to what they said to you. Mm-hmm. And saying yeah. it in such a way that makes them feel, you know, mm-hmm. somewhat humiliated yeah. so that they will realize, yes, I should have done that, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah, and, it, and that's totally the normal, logical reaction to, to that kind of thing. But this logic, this different understanding and the risen victim says we got to get out of that because because we get stuck when we when we try to respond evil with evil right that's that's the exact context in which jesus says to love your enemies he says you've heard it said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth to respond kind for kind tit for tat you hurt me i'll hurt you right and that's totally normal but this, but this revelation of our freedom and ability to participate in this new kind of life lets us out of that. And it lets us out of that with love and with forgiveness. It lets us out of having to be strong by being weak, actually. And that, that doesn't sell well. It doesn't sound good. But yet there's something entirely new and hopeful and deeply alive and potent in that. So, yeah, it's a good question, though. Because it, it feels just like giving up on justice. Doesn't it? It does. Mm-hmm. I hear you. Any other questions? interesting things in all of this, just as we were covering here, that we tend to respond to each other. When you bring in something new to the situation, something that doesn't 
go into that negative spiral, you can actually produce positive spirals by bringing something new in, by bringing a surprising, uncalled-for life and love that isn't just determined by the logic of the situation where the person didn't deserve it. Where you're, And I'm so guilty of this. I wait. Right? Like, just when I see somebody, I always wait for them to say hi first. <laughs> I never say hi first to anybody. <laughs> it's terrible. But I always wait for somebody else, and that's the end. But the, this logic of this approach is this freedom to live out of a place of not being afraid that they will not reciprocate good for good, but maybe evil for good. It's the freedom to begin with the freedom to love without knowing how it's going to turn out. Same context of uh, Fred and, and Matt and Jesus and God. What, what happened to Fred? What happened to Fred? Like know. in the big story, or like like yeah. So the, the the story is that Fred. Well, I won't get into like the real life story, which is things turned out decently. Um, but in the context of especially what I'm saying yeah. here in the in the logic of the story. Yeah. The story is that we all, that we begin to recognize that we are all simultaneously never completely innocent nor ever completely guilty, that we're all caught up in this. We've all been on the receiving end and on the giving end of this kind of thing, right? We, we are all the kind of people who need to be reconciled to one another. We are all the kind of people who need to do a lot of forgiving and who many people should be begging us to forgive us to forgive them for the things that they have done to us as well. That this is the kind of world we live in where we are all simultaneously frequently victims and frequently victimizers and that we all stand in need of this kind of forgiveness, this conviction of sins so that we can begin to live differently so that we can stop getting stuck in those kinds of patterns. And so does that... Is that the lesson of the resurrection? I think that for me the lesson has to do with that that God is most close to those who are unjustly victimized. That that is where God is closest and most identified because precisely as we confess the second person of the Trinity was the innocent victim. So that we confess that God is always the closest to victims, being one himself, having entered into that, because this is humanity at its worst, that we create victims all the time. Um, like, and again, that's like there's varying levels. We're not always literally unjustly murdering somebody. We're just, like I said, casting people out of social groups and whatnot, there's, there's levels of intensity that things can build towards. Um, and then the revelation that we're all caught up in that, 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 that we're all these kind of people, and that once and for all, that, that is revealed to us, that the, whatever God we thought God was, that God was the kind of God who would destroy our enemies who have done these things to us, 
God is something very different than this. God is the forgiving victim. And we get to... So, so, so God is on the side of victims, but in such a way that he frees victims of just being defined by their victimization. Because as we've seen in history, in any revolution of an oppressed people, as they rise up, they basically just flip the script and start doing the same things. Right? There is no, there is no beautiful revolution that has ever happened. Uh, I, I heard... <laughs> Like sort of in a like, I think I think this this uh, this little vignette was supposed to like refer to like the people of Cuba. It's like Viva la Revolution! We will all eat strawberries and cream. I don't like strawberries and cream. Viva la Revolution! We will all eat strawberries and cream. And and so. So there is a logic in recognizing the unjust oppression of those who don't deserve it. But when you use the same, when you mirror the same means to overthrow the oppressors that the oppressors use, you just produce a new cycle of injustice. And so the revolution here is the revolution of the human heart and of the forming of a new kind of community that slowly learns to stop making victims in order to be a part of each other. And I mean, just look at the history of the church. God, we have missed it. <laughs> as, the, as the new community, as the new Israel who should be the community who doesn't do that, yeah, not so much. <laughs> but there's still the grace of being able to see that, and that's maybe a new thing. That's maybe a brand new thing. And so that, and so, despite all of this, we are able, as kind of <laughs> this feels this feels like a gathering of church detrius. Right here, folks who've been maybe not 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 done so well with the church <laughs> in their experience, and that that'll that'll probably ring pretty true. Man, I've been <laughs> I've been run out of a few places. <laughs> um, but that there's still hope for us. That there's still in this story something fresh and new and alive and available that we can do something new and something different that this very room could be the seed for something entirely new not only that this room is the seed for something entirely new who knows what but if we start to move according to this new availability this new kind of life, something new can happen. So, great question.
And so we, we participate in what is a reversal of really cannibalism. Let's just be straight up here. <laughs> in, in communion, this is my body, this is my blood. That human sacrifice had its origins that way. And that this is a great reversal of stripping away of violence of us coming together. That Jesus, right, the victim to end all, like uh, the, the, the book of Hebrews says, the sacrifice to end all sacrifice. That this is the end of us making victims. That this is what we commemorate in, in the Lord's table, communion, Eucharist. I like Eucharist, it's grace, because this is a gift. It's so clear when, when we cast it this way how little we deserve this, and it's such given surplus grace given to us. The end of victimizing to the victimizers, the forgiveness of all of that. You don't have to do this anymore. You don't have to make yourself okay by making somebody else not okay. You don't have to do this anymore, so I give. And so that's what we commemorate and celebrate and participate in. This is my body. This is my blood. And so on the night he was betrayed, that's what Jesus did with his disciples who were about to abandon him, who were about to betray him. Eat of my body and the bread of the new covenant. Those are the wrong words. I should be reading this from a script. It's all gone wrong. (laughs) (laughs) I ruined it. (laughs) But this is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you so that you can stop doing this kind of thing.